You're listening to Early Doors Football Podcast with host Mark Roach and co-host Dylan Kerr, Tom Watt and Sherelle Casal, a For The Now media production. Welcome to episode 13 of the Early Doors Football Podcast and we've got a bumper extended episode for you this week. Our first guest is Arsenal legend Alan Smith and courtesy of ITV, Here is a reminder of a dramatic night at Anfield in May 1989 when Alan scored the first goal and set up the crucial second goal as Arsenal clinched the title in the final game of the season. Arsenal comes streaming forward now and surely what will be their last attack. A good ball by Dixon finding Smith. For Thomas, charging through the midfield! Thomas, it's up for grabs now! Thomas! Right at the end! An unbelievable climax to the league season. Well into injury time, the Liverpool players are down absolutely abject. Our other guests this week are Bath City manager Jerry Gill, comedian and former Plymouth player Paul Boardman and Eastleigh Ladies assistant manager Brad Walsh. But before all of that, instead of highlight of the week this week, we're going to be focusing on clubs from around the world over the next few weeks. And we are starting right here in England with Marlowe FC in Buckinghamshire. Marlowe are 151 years old this month having been founded in November 1870, and they are founder members of the FA Cup. They played in their first ever FA Cup competition in 1871, and they're the only club to have entered the FA Cup every year since it started, and they reached the semi-finals in the 1881-82 season. And Marlowe's Cuthbert Ottaway captained England against Scotland in 1872, which was the first ever international football match. The current Marlow side play in Isthmian League South Central Division, and they play their games at the Alfred Davis Memorial Ground in Oak Tree Road, Marlow. Marlow reached the FA Cup third round in January 1993 and played against Tottenham Hotspur at White Hart Lane. Spurs fan David Russell's side lost 5-1 but Marlowe captain and Tottenham fan Dave Lay scored Marlowe's goal. Then in the 94-95 season, Marlowe hosted Oxford United in the FA Cup first round and they won 2-0 against the Division 2 side who had been playing the season before in Division 1, which is the equivalent of the Championship now, thanks to two goals from John Caesar. And I've known Marlowe's chairman Terry Staines for more than 30 years and I reported on the club's matches in the 1990s. And it was great to catch up with Terry at a Marlowe game a few years ago. And Terry will be a guest on the Early Doors football podcast in December. And now I'm delighted to welcome an Arsenal legend to the show, Alan Smith. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Mark. Yeah, can't complain. And and Alan, uh, confession here, I'm not even an Arsenal fan, but that game that we were speaking about before this started on the last day of the season in 1989 against Liverpool, that is still one of the greatest games of football I've ever seen. 
So just start off um, for about the 10,000th time, I'm sure, by talking a little bit about what it was like to play in that game, to score the first goal and to win the title in the way that he did. I mean, it's obviously an iconic game, Mark, one that any football fan of a certain age would remember and remember where they were, I think, uh, that night. A bit of a, a JFK moment in terms of football. Uh, yeah, I think all the boys just feel honoured to be to have been involved in such a, you know, a monumental climax to a league season, to have won it in that fashion. Um, we, we went up there hoping for the best, but not expecting too much. We went up there without too much pressure on our shoulders. Everybody fancied Liverpool, not surprisingly. We had to win by two clear goals. Uh, Liverpool were a magnificent side at the time. It was hard enough getting the ball off them, never mind about scoring a goal at Anfield particularly. Um, so we went up there in a kind of, you know, relaxed frame of mind. I remember the coach was quite jovial um, going up and uh, we had a bit of lunch and, and everyone went to bed for a couple of hours. Everybody slept really well. I remember that. I shared a room with David O'Leary. Me and him uh, slept like babies and, and all the other boys did too. I, I think that was our mood. Then George Graham gave a fantastic team talk at the hotel. I got the old flip chart out, as he always did, and went through the tactics. Uh, I was playing five at the back, which came as a surprise to a lot of us because we'd only done it a few times. Um, but uh, he had his reasons for that. But he really inspired us, and he did the same in the dressing room before we went out. So we went out there in a confident frame of mind, really pumped up to, to try and do ourselves justice. I mean, I I think with games like this, Mark, as a as a professional, you just want to feel that you've you've come up to the mark. You've done you've done yourself justice, uh, and I think all of us could could say that at the end. Um, so when I got the first goal, ten minutes into the second half, you know, you, the the whole atmosphere changed within the stadium. Uh, it got even louder. The the Liverpool fans, you know, were screaming. <laughs> Uh, for a reaction from their team, um, it was deafening, and, and the ball never never sat still for a second. It was a frenetic pace, it really was. And when I look back on it, you know, players were being clattered into, uh, crashing to the floor. Everyone was just getting up, brushing themselves down. Ref was going, "Play on, play on," and it's such a contrast to today. And you know, you do hark back for those times when. Players weren't trying to get each other sent off all the time. You know, you always used to turn away and then grimace and try not to limp, uh, not show your opponent that you uh, you'd been hurt. But yeah, uh, we all remember the the winning goal for Mickey Thomas, John Lukic throwing it out to Lee and, and Lee playing it up the channel to me. It was just something we'd done a hundred times before that season. Uh, I naturally showed for it. Um, and I felt I had to take a first touch and swivel at the same time because I thought the whistle was going to go any second. And luckily, my, my touch came off and I just saw this yellow blur, which was Mickey Thomas making a, a storming forward run. And I just tried to put it into his path. And, it, and he got the break of the ball, didn't he, off, off Steve Nicholl. And we, we, we were all just jogging behind because we knew we couldn't support Mickey. We couldn't get up alongside him and we were just begging for him to get his shot away. Mickey was one of the most stubborn people in the world, one of the most relaxed. He never did anything when he didn't want to do it. He did it all in his own time. And that served us well, brilliantly well on the night. And uh, he just waited for Bruce Grobelard to make his move. And then Mickey flicked it over him. So 
it, it was bedlam, yeah. And it, it, we got back in the dressing room and somebody said, you might as well pack up now, lads. It's never going to get any better than this. And, you know, I think for, for most of us, it didn't. For all of us, it didn't. It couldn't really. It, and, and the further away you get from it, the more special it, it becomes. It, it goes into folklore, uh, football folklore, not just Arsenal. Uh, so as I said at the start, it, it was just an absolute pleasure and privilege to be involved in a match like that. And, and I often ask our guests if, if they've met Dylan and Tom before, but I don't think I need to ask you if you know Tom, do I? No, no, I've met him a few times. I believe he supports the Gunners. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your book launches at all, by the way. Don't worry yeah. about that. Oh, it's great to see. It's, it's really interesting you say that about, oh, um, you know, someone in the dressing room said, well, we might as well pack up now and never get better than that. <clears throat> We're actually... Actually, it probably did get better than that. It didn't get more dramatic than that. But 1991 was better. The other season, you won the Golden Boot. And it, it's just, it's always interested me, really, that that one, because it all came down to one game, nobody will ever forget 89. 1991, team was stronger, completely dominated the league, lost one game, and that was only because Goldie got kicked out of a game at Chelsea. And you go... Actually, that team was just an amazing team. That close to being the first Invincibles. But it's kind yeah. of forgot because that was a whole season. And it's, you know, you think about what happened in the wake of 89. It did kind of change English. Obviously, you know, Hillsborough happened the same season. And, but in, you've had fantastic career as a broadcaster. <clears throat> and the, person, the people who you've spent most of your time working for as a broadcaster have spent their entire existence dreaming of a night like 26th of May, 1989. Yeah. Dreaming of a season coming down to a climax like that. Do you know what I mean? Um, it's uh, it, it just the power of that happening and it happening live on television. And by the way, on a Friday night, just has made that game and that season different from any other. Yeah, I say, you know, it would never get any better. I think it was the drama of it, wasn't it, Tom? Yeah, and you're right, absolutely. we were a better team, more complete side in 91, and it would have been lovely to be the first Invincibles. Uh, wasn't to be. David Seaman had come in, Anders Limpar both played major parts in that, in that campaign. Uh, and it, I think it does get overlooked, obviously, because the Invincibles have since uh, done the damage. Uh, but, yeah, we, we've got that extra couple of years' experience. 89 was special because none of us really had won anything. David O'Leary had won some FA Cups. Kev Richardson had, had won the league as an in-and-out player at, at Edmonton. But the rest of us, Tom, you know, we hadn't won anything. And we were all in it together, all learning together. There was uh, that enthusiasm of slight rawness, if you like, about the side. Well, and the, the games were a bit like that. You did genuinely yeah. go to games all through 88-89. It wasn't just Anfield where you thought, I don't know who's going to win today. Even when we were going well, you you didn't go to games expecting to win. I'm talking as a sport rear. 91, 90-91. Once Liverpool had turned up and picked, I think they picked nine defenders for the away game at Ivory in 1990. Got beat 3-0 and you went, well, happy days, that's it then. And you just went to every game expecting to win it. You know, it was a, it was a different kind of excitement altogether. It was just kind of waiting for the inevitable almost. Whereas yeah. 89 was on the edge all the time, and, and so many of that team were so young. Yeah, not quite as young as today's, I don't think, but 
Yeah, yeah, and it was a bit of an anticlimax, I think, the way we won it in '91. We went for a pre-match <laughs> meal at South Hearts Golf Club, as we always did. Drove down and we're listening to the Nottingham Forest Liverpool game, and you know Liverpool don't get the result they needed, and we've turned up at Highbury and all the fans are dancing, singing. It was party atmosphere, and uh, you know the lads went out to warm up with wigs and all sorts on, which George Graham even then wasn't too keen on, but. Um, it was, it was, you know, it's a funny thing to win the league uh, without actually playing a game, but yeah. that was down to our well, consistency. To be fair, you did cap it off, you did get Africa that night. Yeah, so that was at nice. Least one the Arsenal team was taking it seriously. That's right, and that, that helped me win the Golden Boot. So, uh, Lee Dixon, I owe a favour to, or I did, for letting me have the penalty for my hat trick because he was taking them that year, and I don't think he missed one. Uh, but uh, yeah, that, that was nice. That was a nice way to cap it all off. Well, you know, um, I've only got I've only got one question, and it's about, you know, obviously the character in in, in the dressing room, and I say, I mean, I was lucky to watch all a lot of Arsenal games, especially when I moved to Reading in '93, when there was an Arsenal game at Ivory. I was always at I was always at the stadium, and I was quite lucky to you know go in the players' lounge, uh, and 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 the the banter in the players' lounge was absolutely fantastic, you know, and. You know, I was a character in the dressing room. Obviously, we know Tony Adams, Paul Merson, you know, but the, you know, what was the characters like in, in, in that dressing room? Um, because when I was at Leeds United and we won the, the, the old first division, you know, the characters in that squad, you know, won us that title. You know, what was it like at, at Ivory at that time? Well, it, it was similar, Dylan, you know, going back before 93. Um, you know, you're not all mates in a dressing room, but we all kind of we all kind of got on. I mean, we we socialised together. We had the famous Tuesday club when if we didn't have a midweek game, we we'd train at Highbury, do a physical, you know, around the track, sprints up the north bank, into the gym, weights five side, and then we go out into town. And uh, you know, most of us would go. Some would stay longer than others. You know, you don't need to. Here, who, who those characters were, um, but yeah, and, and we were a team. I mean, like all the great sides, uh, Dylan, we were a team that could scrap if we needed to, and, and we could play football if we needed to. And I think that gets lost sometimes. Uh, you know, some people tagged us a long ball team, but um, we had some very good technical players, you know, the, the likes of Rocky and, and, and Anders Limpar, Paul Davis as well, was a fantastic technician. Uh, so yeah, we, we all we all really got on. Um, you'll always you'll always have disagreements every now and again. Of course you will, but you know that's that's the part of it. People speaking up when when something needs to be said. We had a we had a great captain in Tony, uh, who you know made captain at the age of twenty one, which was amazing. Um, so it was that team spirit that George loved. He knew. He knew we were going out, the gaffer. He just said, lads, just be careful, you know, uh, don't overdo it. Trying to stay out of the newspapers. I think he knew that it was it was great for team spirit. As long as we put it in uh, on the Thursday when we came back after our day off and as long as we put it in on the Saturday or the Sunday, whatever, it, it, he was happy with that. Um, so, yeah, team spirit was key. Alan, can I just ask you about, obviously, it's all, all the focus has been on Arsenal so far and rightly so but um, for any Leicester fans listening that partnership you had there with Gary Lineker was you know something 
special and then what you both went on to achieve in the game after that. Take us back to that that time and what that partnership was like with Gary. Yeah, uh, Gary had just come into the first team, maybe 18 months, been there, and he was the local lad, you know, the golden boy. He'd made an impression, scored some goals in the old second division. Uh, so, so I've come to the club, and it was funny because Jock Wallace, the old Glaswegian, signed me. And then, like, about three weeks later, he left and he went up to Motherwell. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, what's, gonna this, what's this going to mean for me, the manager that's, you know, put his faith in you? But Gordon Milne took over and it was the best thing that could have happened. He cleared out all the, all the Scottish lads. The dressing room was full of Scots. He cleared out a lot, brought in his own players and he gave me a chance. I scored a hat-trick one day uh, in the sec- in second half of a pre-season match against Northampton next to Gary. And uh, we started the first game of the season. And uh, like it was one of those partnerships, Mark, where you didn't need to work too hard on it on the training ground. He was always lurking on the last line. Very, very quick. Uh, always looking for the half chance. And, and I naturally played with him back to goal, you know, flicking it on, holding it up, whatever. And, and he was just flitting around me. So... Yeah, it made, you know, I came from non-league football, the Southern League, and I've stepped into second-tier football. And then within a year, I'm in the top division. But that partnership with Gary made it a bit easier because, you know, we knew each other's games and we were doing well. And that took a bit of the pressure off. Who could have said that Gary would go on to achieve what he did? You know, incredible. Um, But he was such a clever player, you know, such a sharp poacher he just knew where to be and when to be there um so yeah it, it, it was great for both of us really it's it's remarkable coincidence really that you, you had that time at Leicester together and you just look at just how broadcasting has played such an important part in both of your careers since you you retired from playing it's a, a like there was you know, you look for what makes partnerships work, obviously. But I just wonder if there's something, there was something there in both of you. Because you both had, you know, Gary with with the BBC, you with Sky. It's been, it's been, you know, you've both reached absolutely, obviously, both reached very high levels as players. You've actually both reached incredibly high levels as as broadcasters as well. The pairing. Yeah. Have you ever yeah, worked I mean- if I had to choose, Tom, I, you know, I'd, I'd have said Gary would have suited it a lot more than me. It's funny, though. I've heard some early games when he was co-commentating, you know, and he was so flat and what have you. But you learn as you go along, don't you? I mean, I never envisaged uh, having a career in the media in the way that I have. I just didn't think it suited my personality at all. But that's life, isn't it? It can take you in uh, strange directions, unusual ones. Uh, so, it, yeah, it's been it's been very kind for both of us. But... I talked to a few Arsenal players about this, and there's a lot of Arsenal lads in the media, aren't there? And I don't know, you know, me, Righty, Dicko, Martin Keown, Ray Parler, there's loads of us. Uh, and whether that's because, you know, we, we were well coached at Arsenal, you know, we knew what the game was about, um, and that's set us in good stead. I don't know, but, you know, there is an unusual amount of Arsenal lads. You go back a number of years, and there was a lot of Liverpool players in. Alan Hansen's day and, and, you know, Mark Lyson and all those boys. So that, I don't know if there's a connection, but, um, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's been great. I mean, it's interesting what you say about Gary when he first got his start. And I, I'd argue you could say the same thing. It's, it, 
not everybody who goes into broadcasting ever retired from playing. I don't, I'm not sure that everybody goes into broadcasting is prepared to work as hard at that as they were at being a player. You know what I mean? But I think you know you can you can spot people like yourself. Gary is kind of standout from that point of view. That you don't just kind of go into it and coast. You actually work really hard to be as good as you can at something completely different from playing football. Yeah. You know no, what I mean? Well, and and, well, and you know, the people who are like that stand out. Right, he's been the same. He's worked yeah. really hard at what he does. So I think I think some footballers, when they retire, Tom, they think, oh, fancy a bit of that, you know, turning up to a TV yeah. studio or whatever once or twice a week and you, you're getting the profile, the exposure, it's quite glamorous. But... Yeah, as you say, they probably just turn up. You know, I've seen quite a few lads like that and they, they haven't lasted very long at all. Uh, you, you have got to put a lot into it, think what you're going to do and say. Uh, otherwise, uh, yeah, it, it just ends up looking so so bad on, on TV. And people can see it a mile off, can't they, watching uh, if, if, if you haven't done your, your homework, your research. So, uh, yeah, it's like anything in life, isn't it? It's, it you get out what you put in. No, well, it's certainly the case with... Um, and, of course, broadcasting, you say he's been kind of kind to you, and it did lead to um, FIFA, didn't it? Which was a whole other world, EA Sports and FIFA. And I just, obviously, I've done a bit of work for them as well, so I'm more than averagely familiar with what you brought to the game. But I just, that must have... Have you ever played FIFA, Al? No. no I was, I was from, <laughs> you never played it? No, I've, I mean, you know, I've got, a couple of, I've got a couple of nephews who, you know, and I've listened when they've been playing it and that. I mean, I've got two girls, so they've never they've never played it. But, uh, yeah, that lasted for nine, ten years. Um, and, uh, again, I love doing that. And, and people still come up to me. Now, I haven't done it for the last couple of years. And um, people still come up and say, oh, I love you on FIFA. You know, when I'm with Martin Tyler, we were at Wembley the other day and... Uh, some some lads called us over, and it, it's the age group as well. You know, you'll get twelve year olds coming over and wanting a selfie, whatever, because they they're listening to you. And parents saying, "All I can hear is your voice booming out." You know, the the boom next door, whatever. It it, it was great. It again, that was something that you know you had to be thinking on your feet. Uh, they, if they wanted a a certain scenario described, you had to come up with six different ways of doing it. So again, like that vocabulary. Uh, being yeah, able yeah. to describe things in different ways was very important. And my and my education, I think, before I came into football has helped me in that direction. You know, you know, Tom, I've, I've always written. I worked for the Telegraph for 20 years, yeah, yeah. standard last couple of years. And uh, I, uh, I stayed on at school. I went to uni for a year before Leicester came in for me. So that that was that was a great um, background uh, to go into the media, I think, because, you know, it's all about w words, isn't it? Picking the right ones. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, it, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe when you're kind of sat in a little booth doing the the commentaries for, for FIFA, you're not particularly aware of it, but I just, the numbers that that game reach reaches and therefore the numbers that you reached, and you're talking about, you know, you say you did it for nine years, that will take people through their entire teenage years. Yeah. Their entire teenage years will have been played out to Alan Smith co-commentaries oh, in a way that they wouldn't have been watching live football. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I've, uh, I, I've been to see my girls at, at university and uh, 
you know, the windows are open in, in the digs, the halls of residence and that, and you can hear my voice coming out. They go, oh, that's you, Dad. They're always playing FIFA, you know, and, and that's what it's like. It, it, it's not just uh, kids of a school age, you know, they, you go into uni years and they Absolutely. continue. So, yeah, amazing. Yeah, and lucky for you, they can't afford the latest iteration, so they're still playing you. Yeah, well, that's the best one, mate. It's the best one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the old ones are the best ones, as they say. But it is, it, it, I just, I had, obviously I wasn't kind of as, uh, I was involved in a completely different way with, or I am involved in a completely different way with FIFA. But that, just every now and again, you, you know, because most of the work I did, I work on storyline and stuff and narrative, um, the whole kind of journey thing, and then Volta, work on storylines and, and dialogue for all that. And you're just, you know, it's just a couple of people in a room. But then you go, I remember going and doing a thing with, um, it was kind of rewrites on the spot for a little Thierry Henry bit. So they said, oh, can you come down just in case there need to be rewrites, be there with Thierry so you can rewrite on the spot and stuff. And I turned up at this studios down by Hooks and they were like, there must have been like 300 people there. And there's this little black booth where Thierry's actually voicing. And there's me and him and a producer in this little industry. It was like little black curtains all around. Outside, there's like 300 people making all this up. And they've got, you know, there's so-and-so filming the filming of. And it's just, every now and again, you kind of get an idea of the scale of this thing. It's like, it's a monster. Well, when we did it, with me, there was me, Martin, there was the sound man and the producer who'd flown over yeah. from Vancouver. There was, there was four of us, uh, but uh, it was a little... I mean, you know, little black, in, Street. in our yeah. little black cupboards, there were only three of us, but you know, yeah. you, you get to see on your way to your little booth, you see how much else is going on. And yeah, but that's, that's Thierry's entourage, isn't it? He always, he always used to have a big one. <laughs> yeah, there was a few of them. There was a few of them. Alan, just uh, just want to say thanks for, for having you on. Great to, to have you on as a guest and thank you for your time. No, that's my pleasure, Mark. My pleasure. Good to talk to you, lads. And now I'm joined by Jerry Gill, who's the manager of Bath City in the National League South. Welcome, Jerry. You, you play for Birmingham City, you play for Cheltenham, among others, and, and you played for Bath City. Do you think playing for them has helped you in your role as, as manager of the club now? Yeah, I think so. I think um, understanding the sort of affair there, understanding the city, understanding the West Country non-league football scene. Um, and the football club actually, physically, when you go to Twerton Park, is still the same 30 years ago, still the same now probably when you turn up. It's, um, it's a tired old stadium, but actually it's got a lot of, it's got a lot of soul. It's got a lot of um, a lot of football history there. A lot of really good memories. Memories when I was a player as well. Big FA Cup ties. Um, yeah, and what we've done is on and off the pitch. I went in and we were getting average gates of sort of five hundred. I think it's helped that I've connected straight away with the fans as well. We're playing with a certain style, and we're up averaging sort of eleven hundred now every every week at Twerton Park, which is brilliant for the city and for the football club. And um, yeah, we played an FA Cup tie the other week against Froome, who are two or three levels below us, and we had 1,400 in there. So, But, um, no, we've hit the playoffs two years in a row. And um, the main thing is, on and off the pitch, it's in a real healthy state, which is a lot to be said for a non-league football, football club. 
it's great, isn't it? You know, talk about crowds like that. <clears throat> um, we're talking about the sixth tier of professional football club, uh, of professional football in this country. And there's still like 1,000, 1,500 people turning up, paying good money, by the way, to yeah. watch. Do you know what I mean? That is, that is absolutely unique to this country. And Bath, I just, I, I wanted to ask you a bit, because you've said what you've been able to do at Bath since you arrived, and you'd have known this because of your time as a player there. Yeah. The, the real appeal of the job, is, it's a stable football club. Well, it is now anyway. It's had its ups and downs, but you just feel like it's a place where you can get a bit of time. You're not mm. going to be sacked after three bad results. No. And you can, you can kind of start a culture at the football club and, you know, make connections and create a style of play and, and make a squad how you want it. And that's got a lot going for it. You know, you look higher up the leagues and literally it's, you know, even in League Two, there's yeah. people going, oh, well, they haven't won in six, better sack the manager. Do you know what I mean? And that, yeah. Bath City is no, not a club um, like that. And of course, you know, no, Tom, it's not. You it's, know, it's, it's, it's not, exactly. Cheltenham's very similar, both clubs, even though obviously Cheltenham have moved on and doing fantastic in League One. But no, I, I sort of resonate with that. I, I think the thing I always say about Bath City, and I've been an academy coach at clubs like Norwich and Wolves and Bristol Rovers, and even in academy setups now as a football coach, you're looking over your shoulder constantly because even younger coaches want your job if you're an 18s or a 23s coach. I worked with Paul Trollope and Chris Hewton, and once Chris and Paul got the sack, as an 18s, 23s coach, you're looking over your shoulder again and thinking, crikey, next man in, I'm of the old regime, I'll be out the door. And it's similar yeah, up and yeah. down the country. But, but at Bath, I've got to say, they say, there's your budget, Jerry. We'll do everything we can to help you and support you. You get on with your job. We'll let, we know you're good at your job. You can do your job. And to have that feeling of security to a certain extent and that backing from so many good people. Now, as you know, Tom, the majority of our people at our football club are all volunteers. They don't get paid. Yeah. So there's only, I think, four members of staff that are on the payroll at Bath City Football Club, me being one, and the rest are volunteers. So if you come on a match day like you have been, um, and you see all the good work that's going on to, we've introduced things like small things, but big things in flag bearers, ball boys, ball girls, people walking around with a, an old tray like you get in the cinema selling flags and bobble hats and bits and bobs out before the game and pop-up bars outside. This all goes a long way to what I introduced, which was a Bath City way. Now, they're very corny. You hear them up and down the country as a Norwich way, a Wolves way, an Arsenal way, but I truly believe our club live it. And um, it's up yeah. on the wall in the dressing room. The players know it. The staff know it. And, um, and it's really important to us, actually. So I often talk in the interviews after a game. I don't just talk about the game. I talk about what's gone on outside of the game as well. So, um, no, it's a, it's a really good place to be. And I, do you know what? I'd love to bring them success. I'd love to, you know, having been in the playoffs two years, I'd love to have gone to the next step, but we weren't quite ready to. Um, but who knows? Who knows what this season may bring? But, you know, Bath, Bath supporters, look, if, if, if you're one of the thousand, if you were one of the 500 and you're now one of the thousand, you know what you're watching and you know what the club is. And really, more than anything, more than anything, supporters aren't going to Bath City at the start of every season and going, want to win Conference South by um, National League South by 10 points. They're going, I want to see my team compete all season. Yeah. And that's what you've done. 
last couple of years, that's what you've done. And that, you know, and it, you, you say that about all the volunteers working there. And it, it really is, you, you kind of go down and you go down the leagues. And again, the, the, it, there's the comparison to be made with, with a town like Cheltenham. So Bath, it's famous for all sorts of things. You know what I mean? Regency buildings, Roman baths, festivals, theatre, all of this. Rugby. The football club comes pretty low on the list of what people think of when they think of the city of Bath. Yeah. But if you're one of, if you are Bath City, if you are one of those supporters, that all just makes it matter even more to you. Hundred percent. Do you know what I mean? You're like a kind of band of brothers there. You're not. Yeah. You, you, you're not going to turn on the radio and hear people talking about your club. You're not going to read in the paper, other than you know the local paper, maybe if you're lucky. People writing about your football club. It's not kind of millions of followers on social media. But you've got your few hundred, and those few hundred absolutely live and breathe. And that's why you're absolutely right. I mean, volunteer. I remember doing a load of work at Bath on a book 30 years ago. And what you just said about volunteers was absolutely as true then as it is yeah. now. Yeah. Do you know, clubs like Bath don't survive with that, that, that sort of good no, 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 no. And that no, no, sort no. of good is possible because of the nature of the football club. Yeah, and it actually it goes against us because when clubs like when you came Maidstone and well any club comes to Twerton Park, they love it. You walk up, you've walked up that you've walked up that tunnel and you walk out. It's an old-fashioned stadium, the big old-fashioned big floodlights, terraces opposite straight away, an open end. Who, who has open ends anymore? Like Ashton, I remember as a kid going to Ashton Gate and sitting standing on the open end with my dad, and it's got that. And like I said, it has a real feel-good factor and you talk about I mean I've got a physio now a young girl from Bristol Rovers she's she joined us in the summer and she said you know what I came here with Bristol Rovers and she said I walked out of that tunnel and I thought what a great place this would be to do some work and what a great environment would be well she joined us a year later um brilliant so things like that things like that I I'm really proud of our club what we've done we are trying to we are trying to spread our wings a little bit we talk about the rugby everyone talks about the rugby because it's a rugby city but actually me and Stu Hooper get on really well and um, about two and a half years ago, I forget the pandemic, about two and a half years ago, we said, right, let's get together. So we went and played down at Bath Cricket Club, which is a lovely setting. We played a game of cricket, the football against the rugby boys. We had over 500 people turn up. We ran out of beer. And that went a long way to us gaining some support from the rugby. So what you'll find now is if the rugby's not around, normally people go, well, it's either rugby or the football. Well, actually, now we are actually getting a few sports people city sports people come and watch come and watch the the football as well so we are trying to spread our wings but it's important that we do recognize you're right tom underneath the chimney pots of people that walk out the council estate and come and watch week in week out you know struggle to pay to get in but do it because they want it um they're they're there through thick and thin and this this a thousand bc we smashed and now we're looking we're looking up to get to 1500 magical 1500 mark if we can but to be over a thousand is just it's just 56 percent increase in attendance over three years is, is phenomenal no it's Sorry. fantastic i just i mean I, re I remember doing fundraisers there but uh, does ken loach still come to, to games he's still there you know, Ken's still around. yeah 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 so he's I remember going, to, going to do fundraisers for him down at, at twerton do you know what i mean just when things right. were very very tough and yeah. I, I was going to ask you if your uh, your young physio is actually even aware of the fact that Bristol Rovers used to play there. No, <laughs> she won't be. No, 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 not like at all. No. Distant history. 
No, I, I do go on Radio Bristol. Uh, I don't know if you remember Jeff Twentyman. Yeah, yeah. Oh, blimey, he's still around. So he's around. He, he runs the. He's on BBC Radio Bristol. He's a great. He's a great friend of mine, and he pushes our club. And he talks about, of course, his time playing under Jerry Francis at Twerton Park. He played all his football yeah. for the Rovers at Twerton Park. So, um, yeah. And as I said, that that stadium hasn't changed since Bristol Rovers were using it. Absolutely, it's so brilliant when you come at you. You mentioned the tunnel and the bed. You're probably so used to it, you don't even notice. But if you just do it every now and again, like I have a few times, you come out that tunnel and you look at that stand opposite you. And, you know, it's like, because there's such a slope on the pitch, it's like you're standing there, you're going, is that, <laughs> is that stand all wonky or is it me? Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. that much, it's that tilted from one it end is. to the other. It's I don't know that there's another site quite like it because it's just one single stand with one roof. It is. And it's, well, that, you go, that, stand, that stand, mate, um, I had a vision in the summer about um, the back walls are all breeze blocks, literally all breeze yeah, blocks. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Still, still supports between. So a bit like, um, you know, Maidenhead have got the black and the white. So yeah. I, myself, Bob Chester and my assistant, Jim, I said, right, lads, let's get over there. We're going to paint one section white, one black, one white. So it looked like a retro scarf. Yeah, well, yeah. 65 litres later, we'd finished, <laughs> we'd finished the back wall. So when you walk out now, it looks like an old retro old scarf. scarf. We put, where the black is, we've put a white letter, and where the white is, we've put a black letter, and it says Bath City. It looks such a visual. It's a brilliant thing. I wanted to, what I try and do is, because we haven't got a lot of money, I try and make sure for the fans and also for the players, every time they come back for a new season, we've done something slightly different. So whether that's yeah. some branding in the dressing room, whether it's a wall over the far side, whether it's, like I say, ball boys and ball girls, we try and do as best we can to try and improve it. So they come in and they go, do you know what? That's, that's good, that is. That's, a good, that's another feel-good factor. Jerry, yeah, can I ask you a question? Sure. Jerry, it's a pleasure to meet you via South Africa, right? What's, right. Your, what's, your, what's your support network like in, in, in at Bath City in, in that scenario where former player... Gets, goes back to his old club and, and manages it. What's your support network like at the football club? In regard of what other football people, clubs, etc., and things like that? The directors, the players, you know, you, you mentioned the young lady that's the physio. Yeah. I mean, how so you support yeah. network at, at that football club when you're not in League One, League Two, in, in the National Conference League? In, in, what's the support network and how, how do you find it? It, it, from a from a coaching point of view, as a previous player, uh, now you're at Bath City. Yeah, that's a great question because that, that's probably my only frustration. That it really is the fact that I only get to see my boys Tuesday and a Thursday night, which a lot of people don't don't realise how mm -hmm. tough that is. So I only get an hour and a half, two hours of the boys on a Tuesday and a Thursday. Um, and yeah, I've. I've got, I've got an assistant manager who's got a full-time, this is my full-time job, even though it is part-time, it's not, it never is. I do it every minute of the day. I'll be watching 23s games going up to Cheltenham, Bristol City, Bristol Rovers. Keith Downing would invite me into Bristol City. So I'll go around and do lots of club visits, always learning, educating myself, but put my full, full work in the Bath City Football Club, really. I'll spend three days over at the club. I've got a brilliant, I've got two chairmen. So um, I think that's a good thing. 
Um, I've got one, Paul Williams, who's a football chairman, who's day-to-day -day will sit there and he will be my contact. We'll talk, which is really important. We've got such a good relationship. We'll talk every day, three or four times. We've got Nick Blood, CEO um, at Warwick Castle. Uh, he's strategic planning side of things at a business. So we'd, when we talk about the redevelopment that had been turned down by the Lib Dems that we'll be going back in for soon, um, he's involved in that heavily. And, that, and nowadays I've got sports science, physios, I've got my own analyst. But when I say all this, they don't get paid. They're all, um, they're all <laughs> volunteers. So um, I, I can't thank them enough, but I do it. And Tom knows me. I try throughout my career as a player. I was, I couldn't have been no more, no more. I wasn't the most gifted player in the world, but I, I finished when I was 39 playing for Cheltenham Town because I was professional. I made sacrifices and I give myself the best chance. And that's all I'm doing as a manager, really. I'm ensuring that A, I give myself the best chance, but more importantly, you give the players everything you possibly can because if all they've got to worry about is going out on that football pitch, then you're going a long way to helping them. So we, even though I only see them on a Tuesday and Thursday, I've spoke to three today on the phone, just generally, you know, catching up. How are you? How did it go last night? Anything you need? So, and it's not just money. It's, um, and it's not money at all, really. If they don't come to Bath City for money. I'm not in Bath City for money. Um, mm -hmm. They come because... It's a good club that's got, like you've said there, good support um, from staff, good support in general from anyone at the football club, and um, and we do things the right way. Well, I'm, I'm kind of like, because when I when I, I, live, I live in Troon, which is in the west of Scotland, sorry, I lived in Troon in the west of Scotland, and I signed for Arrogate Town for six months. And I used to travel down on a Saturday morning, it used to take me three and a half hours to get to Harrogate. I used to play a game of football and then drive three and a half hours back to Drew, you know, because I love just playing. And, and I retired at 32, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, but I, I just wanted to keep on playing. And, and like I say, it's not, it wasn't for money. I mean, all they give me were my medical expenses, you know? So, uh, and, you know, how, how, you know, do you relate to your players that are just playing for the love of the game and with the hope that, they can go to that next level, which is Cheltenham, Bristol Rovers, Bristol City. Yeah. So it, 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 that, that, that must be an amazing, you know, feeling as yeah. a coach who, like I said, retired at 39, mm. you know, to see all these players that playing, and like I said, not for money. Yeah, and we've got, and every single one of them are different. So we've got PT instructors, accountants, roofers, uh, van drivers. We've got a whole whole range of, of different types of personalities and guys, which I love. I think it's brilliant. Um, but what, what they do is we, we recruit probably down to Plymouth, so southwest, up to probably Gloucester, because now Gloucester have gone in the National League North. We don't bother with anything above that. Maybe South Wales, got some from Newport, and then we go across. Because we're a London-based league, there's no point in me going into London because the pool of players is taken up by the pool of clubs within it, 16 clubs within the M4 corridor is, is pointless. And what comes with London clubs is, of course, is bigger budgets. And I don't ever go out and talk, you know, Tom come to see us against Maidstone and I get on really well with Stilly and with Hack. I, I played with Hakan as a 16-year-old at Leighton Orient back in the day. I don't know if you knew that, Tom. Really? Wow. I, no, I didn't. A, as, a, as a boy, well, they're full-time. And when I saw Hack the other day, I was really envious of him that he could get his players on a Friday morning and go through a session before a game. But, but the players... I've got, they, I tell them constantly, 
it's not enough just to do something on a Tuesday and Thursday evening with me. I, I sort of relate to what you said there, Dylan, about, about your travel. I, um, I left Bath City for nine and a half grand in 1995, 96. Graham Roberts signed me, the old Tottenham centre-back at Yeovil. And um, I was working in Bracknell at the time. And I travelled three hours down to Yeovil on a Tuesday night, three hours back. And then a Thursday night, three hours down, three hours back. And I had the best time of my life. And that's when I turned pro. So I got moved to Birmingham City then in 1996. Trevor Francis then signed me. And I made my league debut at 27. So I, I often talk about those those sacrifices that players have to make if they want to make it. Now, I've got some that don't actually, not in a bad way, they don't want to turn pro because yeah. they've got really good jobs. Um, yeah. They're happy with their lives. They might be having children. The family settled in the West Country, which is a lovely place to live, obviously. I still do talk about those, those sacrifices that I, I still think should be, should be in players, whether you're playing at Barcelona or whether you're playing at Barcelona. You've still got to be able to make those sacrifices to be successful. And now, welcome to the Early Doors Football Podcast to Paul Boardman, comedian, Liverpool fan and former Plymouth player. And Paul, I'd like to, to start there if I can. You're, you're the son of Stan Boardman and you followed mm -hmm. in your dad's footsteps as a comedian, but you also emulated your dad as a, as a footballer. He was a, an apprentice at Liverpool and played for Tranmere as well. So my first question to you is what did he think when you you told him that you'd signed for a team at the other end of the country in Plymouth he said to me it's the only place I can get a game that's what he said <laughs> uh, yeah my, my, my our first love my, my dad obviously stand-up comedian um, and still going um, and, and I have followed in those footsteps although I, I say my style is a, is a lot different um, but yeah our first love father and son was, was football like most father and sons up and down the country so um, um that was that was our first love and my dad himself was a decent player so he tells me he was he was the type to sort of run through a brick wall he was at liverpool in the 18 just before shankly arrived he was playing with players like uh, len ashurst who was went on to, to to play something like four or five hundred league games for sunderland and seven dad Flying pig, you know, um, Tony Lawrence was in the same team, and Ian Callaghan. So um, my dad was a decent player, and yeah, and, and he still feels that he, he was good enough to. He went into the army, but he still feels he, he was good enough to. If he'd have stayed another year, where Shankly would have arrived, and he would have kicked, he would have kicked out all the dead wood, and he he still believes he could have made it out yeah. He was with all those, those guys who did, so there's no reason yeah. uh, to think he might not have been. But yeah, he. Um, so yeah, I was football was drilled into me as a, as a kid, um, and we would go and watch Liverpool, which was great back in the you know back in the late seventies, early eighties, which was the heyday for me. You know, European Cups was like every season, um, going to the match and seeing you, you know your Dalglishes and Keegans and, and Sunesses and all this, just amazing experience to be a Liverpool kid in Liverpool at the time. You almost felt like. Um, Liverpool was the centre of the universe at that point in time, you know, and um, so it was a magnificent time to be a kid in Liverpool at that time and supporting Liverpool. I can still remember, you know, the nights of, of going to European nights and my dad, I'd come home from school and my dad would say, right, get your stuff, we're going to get your coat on, we're going to watch Liverpool tonight, you know, who are we playing, who are we playing, dad, uh, grasshoppers of Zurich, you know, these names I've never heard of, you know, uh, 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 Trabzonspor, you know, of Turkey and and Saint Etienne, and you can just, you could, it was incredible. And you'd go there and you'd see the different kits. I mean, Saint Etienne played in this 
luminous green kit and you'd have the, the sort of Dinamo Dresdens coming over in these sort of like um, yellow kit with a stripe down one side and you get the trainers running on with the tight little tracksuit bottoms and it all look a bit different than, than what I was used to. It was just magnificent times. Yeah. yeah. And you talking of Plymouth, you I think you scored on your debut, didn't it? Was it a, a um, game against Bournemouth? What What do you remember about that? Yeah. So when um, I mean, I've been around the houses. I've been in America on a scholarship. I've come back, and um, really, I've been injured so often. I, had a, I ran the Mersey Marathon when I was sixteen, and uh, never had a, got a groin injury from that, and never really was fully fit ever again after that. You know, and I, I packed in at twenty three when I was at Plymouth through. Growing, so I had about six operations. So I'd been around the houses, I had trials with everybody, and um, just, just just not good enough. And then I went to uh, playing for Nose United in the Northern Premier League, played a few games. Scout asked me to go down to, to Plymouth to play uh, uh, Hereford, and I just I was just I said, Look, you know, I'm, I'm really not enjoying football, I, I, I really don't want to be going on trials when I'm 21, 22. You know, so I, I ended up um, saying no, and then John McGovern called. Um, and Peter Shilton and John McGovern had just taken over at Plymouth then. And because it was John McGovern, he convinced me to come and have a little trial match. And I did all right and I enjoyed the football. They played, I was centre forward and playing the ball into feet and everything else. I enjoyed it. Played well. And John invited me to play against Cardiff at Minion Park, which I went down there and scored three. And um, so I'm thinking, wow, well, I'm really enjoying this now. <laughs> and then um, uh, I don't know the game against Torquay, scored again and, and they invited me to pre-season where they said, you know, I would sign a contract and which was great. So I went down there to sign a contract and trained first day, trained second day, trained third day. And I'm still waiting for them to put the contract under my nose. And it dawned on me that I was still on trial. <laughs> but I'm thinking, hang on, mate, you know, there's no sign of a contract here. And there's a game coming up and I'm thinking, if I can play well in this game, they could easily just so you're not signing you. So it was a bit strange, really. And uh, anyway, they, they did sign in. Uh, and I, a couple of months later, I got into the first team and scored on the debut against Bournemouth, which was fantastic. Funny enough, I'd called my dad the day before to say, look, look, Dad, I'd love you to come along. Liverpool to Plymouth is about 300 miles. And my dad's timekeeping is always, he's always late. I said, look, Dad, it's 3 o'clock kickoff. Why, you've got to come down, you know. Um, but make sure you're there for two. You've got to leave at like, you know, eight in the morning to get there. You know? Oh, don't worry, I'll be there soon. I said, and I said to him, I was quite confident. I said, don't, don't be late, Dad, because I don't want you to miss my first goal. <laughs> um, and uh, he got there and uh, I did score. I think it was only like 21 minutes in. And, um, and I remember running off to the, to, the, to the fans and then I looked up into the stands where I knew where my dad was. And uh, I just gave him a little sort of fist pump um, because to me, you know, that was for him. That was for him. And I feel a bit emotional saying it now, talking to you, because um, he was always stood on the line with me. He was taking me in the park and he didn't make it as a, as a professional footballer. He would have dearly loved to have made it. And um, I felt like I'd um, done it for him, really. And, and uh, yeah, so... Getting choking up now, talking about that to be honest with you. But yeah, that that was I remember being a vivid memory of, of where's my dad and looked up and gave me a fist pump. Yeah. 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 And and obviously you, you talked about the injuries and, and, and eventually that put pay to your, your career. But 
do you think without those injuries, did, did you, obviously you probably had the dream of playing for Liverpool. Do, do you think you had a, you would have had a chance? No, no, I did, no, no chance. I mean, I, I was on trial at Liverpool for a month before I signed for Plymouth and uh, yeah, I did all right in the reserves and stuff like that and trained with them. There's nothing in goals, but the levels, the levels were completely different. And um, yeah, you know, I, I'd found my level at League One. I could have carved out a career at that level, um, but um, no higher for sure. Yeah. Uh, and then, obviously, you got uh, finally sort of injury um, caught up with you, and, and you packed football in. And mm -hmm. then you went into. Did you go into stand up straight after football? Yeah. Well, the thing was because I'd grown up with comedy. I mean, I used to go to summer seasons with my dad when I was twelve, thirteen, and you know, Bobby Ball and Cannonball would be down the road and, you know, uh, Les Dennis and Jimmy Tarbuck would be doing the Sundays and Kevin, Ken Dodd would be doing the lunchtime gigs. And just, you know, I remember going to Scarborough and that was, that was the case. It was about five or six theatres in Scarborough. And I'd spend all summer walking around backstage in all these theatres and meeting Danny LaRue and all these places. Didn't bat an eyelid, you know. And so um, I always loved comedy and, and could, knew that I could get up and do it. Knew all the gags. Um, but I loved learning and watching all these guys, the Black Abbots, the Grumbleweeds. And then um, when, my, when, my, when Plymouth, um, when I got injured and, and was finished, we had an end of season dinner and I had to get up and speak on behalf of the players. And from that dinner, um, somebody asked me to come and do their, their golf day. And that was how I was, and I did 20 minutes of the golf day. And the funny thing was, I was, I was getting about, uh, on that, after that, sorry, I, I went off to do sort of workmen's clubs and, and comedy competitions and stuff like that. And I did carve a living because when I was at Plymouth, I was getting 250 quid a week and I could survive on that. For me, that was a great wage. It was brilliant, you know. Um, and then I started doing comedy. And in the early days, even then, you know, I was getting 150 quid a gig. Um, sometimes a little bit more. And sometimes it'd be two in one night. So you can imagine, you know, I was like Rockefeller, you know, and thinking to myself, this isn't a bad career, better than, better than football. <laughs> I always, always had a bit of money in my pocket. I loved a bit of golf. I could go on holiday and um, bought a car. And so I was really, I thought, you know what? I'm going to give this a real, real go. See how long I can, I can do this for. And it's, uh, well, that was 20, 22, 23 years ago. So I'm still doing it. Yeah. And bring us right up to date now, Paul. What, what are you up to now? Uh, well, we've had obviously this, this COVID thing. So there's no gigs. Um, during March, uh, well, March 2020, all my gigs were taken out. So they're just starting to get back again now. And um, yeah, and it's, it's funny because you, you, you lose confidence. You speak to comics who were wondering whether they were even going to go back to do it. Some dropped out and some have, some have said, yeah, you know, and gone back to do it. But it's, we, all, we, all, we all lost our confidence. And um, we're all trying to not only remember some of the routines that worked, but also trying to, all the stuff you've written during lockdown, trying to um, insert that, untested, untried. Um, and the COVID thing is a, is a bit of an elephant in the room. You almost have to, have to mention it. You know, you've got to get that out of the way first. The problem is if you're on with three or four other people, or three or four other comics, and they all do a bit about COVID, you come on and it's sort of like, okay, you, know, <laughs> you, you plan to do all your COVID stuff and everybody's done it. So... You know, so it's you've got to think, keep thinking, keep uh, 
we're trying to sort of adapt to every gig at the moment, even more so than before. And, and you, you're doing something on YouTube now. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I've been doing a thing called The Name Dropper Show. So I've been getting guests on there and uh, asking them what the biggest name drop is and everything else. We've had some good ones. We do a league table. Um, got John Barnes on telling us about um, playing football in his back, gar back garden when he was 14 with Marvin Gaye. Um, Bruce Grobler had a good one. He said that he was chatted up at a gig by Freddie Mercury. Uh, <laughs> He said he was backstage at a gig and um, Freddie Mercury came up to him and said, are you, are you uh, straight or gay? <laughs> and Bruce said, well, I've got my wife over there, you know. And Freddie said, okay, well, that's a shame. But if you ever change your mind, give me a call. <laughs> do, do you think the Tash had anything to do with it? Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, uh, we've, had some, we've had some good ones. And I, so I've enjoyed that. Also been writing, um, I've had a few ideas for films for, for years. And I got down there with a pal of mine called Rob Woodward, who's um, a great comedian. And um, we've been we've been working together on those, and you know, we've been pitching them, thinking it was going to be this is the fun bit. It's actually turned out to be a really painful process. Painful process pitching it. Yeah. But we've we've got to stay the course. We've got to yeah. stay the course. You speak to people, and they say it can take four, five, six years to get a film from script to on the screen so yeah well I wish, wish you well with that and I just want to take take it back to uh to the football and and Liverpool um do, do you get to to Anfield much to see games these days no I, I don't I, I my sister actually is working with one of the official uh, family partners and she can get tickets this season so we're planning to go up there and I would dearly love to take I've got my my two children here who are eight and six I would dearly love them to take them to a game. And um, whether it's a Liverpool or an Everton game, I was trying to get tickets for, for Everton the other week. I've got a real soft spot for Everton, going back years for, for a number of reasons. So it wouldn't bother me if my kids wanted to um, support Everton. Um, I don't really want to force it down their throat to, to, to support Liverpool. I, I, think, I think I might even be an Everton fan at heart, in truth, you know. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to take them to Liverpool and Everton. And um, this season, definitely, and, and let them decide who they want to support. <laughs> I think the atmosphere at Goodison is just fantastic. It's going to be, it's going to be so sad when when they move to to, to, to the Brandon Road Dock. But yeah, yeah. well, that that's the Liverpool way, isn't it? You've got so many families in Liverpool where one yeah. half of the family's blue, one half is red. Well, I was I was when I was injured when I was sixteen, I was at Liverpool and uh, training Tuesdays, Thursdays, and, and I got this groin injury, and they didn't really, they just sort of turfed me out, really. And, it was Everton who took me on and looked after me and gave me physio treatments. And John Clinkard was the physio there then. You might remember him. He looked like Magnum. He was a handsome fella, you know. And he just, he just helped me get back fit. And he would be working on me. And Kevin Sheedy or somebody like that would walk in. And he'd send him out. John said, I'm working on this young lad, you know. And when, at the end of it all, I said, look, what do I owe you to money-wise? He said, don't worry, son, you've worked really hard. He said, good luck. And uh, so Everton have always been a great, great club like that. So that's lot, lots of other reasons why I love Everton as well. Yeah. All right. Well, Paul, it's been great speaking to you and uh, re really enjoyed it and wish you well with your, your film projects and everything else. So thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure, Mark. And now it's time for our weekly look at women's football with me, Sherelle Cassell. And it's fair to say 
I had a bit of an ordeal last week, um, Sunday. Um, we drove the whole way to London Bees, um, Barnet, and our game got called off at 1pm. I mean, we're, we're Premier League team, Portsmouth City versus London Bees. It was horrific weather. And yet, didn't cancel it at all. The referee wanted to do a, a pitch check at half past 12, which really, especially in this day and age in women's football, it should be done in the morning. We get there an hour and a half to an hour and 40 drive, but actually got stuck in traffic. So it took us two hours and it got called off. I think it was about 1.20. Um, the other team also got changed, ready to go out there, but just got called off. So I think, you know, um, with women's football is on the up, but there is still massive, massive waves to go especially in the third tier, and, you know, it's just not on. But what can you do? You know, it, it's out of order, but we move. But, yeah, so not really much to say this week other than what we've happened last week, but, yeah. But, no, thank you for watching Early Doors Football Podcast this week, um, listening to it. Thank you very much. Our views are unbelievable. Really appreciate all your support. Back to you, Mark. And now I'm talking to... Brad Walsh, who's assistant coach at Eastleigh FC Ladies. Welcome, Brad. Great to have you on the Early Doors Football Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Now it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, and, and just to start with, Brad, for any of our listeners who, who don't know um, where Eastleigh Ladies sit in the women's football pyramid, can you, can you explain yeah. the, the, the league that you're in and where that compares to the WSL, for example? Yeah, so we're in the Southern Region Premier League, which is essentially one league below the National League uh, and two leagues lower than sort of the, the more established leagues with the, the professional sides in there as well. So um, we got a promotion last year, having gone up automatically, we won our cup competition as well. So um, we've been thrown in the deep end this year with um, some really strong sides, but we've had a really positive, to this, positive start to the season. So no, yeah, it's been really good so far. And I notice um, on your on your shirt there, um, Eastley have got a pretty cool nickname uh, and logo. Can you tell us a bit about uh, what that's about? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so this is the Spitfire. So um, that's where they were constructed, the Spitfire planes back in the war, uh, where they were they were built in Eastley. So the relationship between the two, we thought we'd um, take part in history and uh, have the logo embroidered on our tops. So yeah, it's fantastic. That's great, and uh, you, you sort of have that that kind of good old fashioned British spirit in in the players as well. Sometimes, do you? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, definitely. We've got a few old boy fans that will um, recall those days as well. So it's fantastic to bring back a bit of history in uh, in, in the football pyramid as well. That's fantastic, and and you're the assistant coach. So are, are they just the two of you? Yes, it's myself and Ash Healy, who's the he's the gaffer at the club. Um, we're also very good friends outside as well. So that's how we sort of um, built our relationship in the in the coaching system. Um, he brought me on alongside him. And yeah, and the rest of it's history. We've had a really positive couple of years together. Um, always helps from your friends outside of football as well. Um, and yeah, we've got a really good relationship. And um, yeah, it's all going really well. And obviously at the top end of the women's pyramid, the WSL, it's um, professional uh, women's teams now. And at your level, is it a mixture of um, sort of semi-pro and, and everyone's got different jobs that they do as, as well, I guess? A bit like sort of non-league football in, in the men's game? 
Exactly that, exactly that. I mean, we haven't got anyone full-time as such. Um, they're not paid positions for the players at the moment. However, that's something down the line we'd like to do. I mean, we're an established club, Eastleigh Football Club. You know, the men's, the men's team are doing fantastic at their level as well in the National League. And we'd like to, to build the same sort of success through the women's game as well. So, of course, that's the eventual goal. Um, but we've got a group of girls that are hungry with the with the desire and the, and the dream of, of being full-time footballers at some point throughout their career. So, yeah, it's a good group, really good group. And as assistant coach, what, what does your role involve at Eastleigh? Yeah, so everything really from uh, preparations in the week, uh, the tactical side of the game, the sessions that we deliver to try and uh, improve the girls, um, you know, for the, the opposition we come up against week in, week out. Uh, I'm also a personal trainer alongside my role. So on a Tuesday evening, we have our gym sessions. So I'll go through some conditioning with the girls to get them into the best physical condition we can for a match day and for a, a long season as well. And, and I think it's fair to say that there are quite a lot of women's teams that are doing well in that part of the country, including the likes of Southampton and Portsmouth. And Shirelle's a, a current player with Portsmouth. And it seems like there's there's some really good opportunities for for girls to to not only just get into the game but actually to to play at a good level. Is is that the way that you see it? And are there those opportunities with Eastleigh? Definitely, I think the the opportunities now are endless in the women's game. Anyway, I think the way the direction that women's football is going, it's exciting. There's more opportunities now than there have been previously as well. And we are blessed in the south coast to have the big sides like Southampton, like Portsmouth, like Bournemouth and like Eastleigh now that can um, bring the girls through the system, through the academies and um, yeah, build them into some you know, great players and future prospects for full-time football in the women's game. And what are your ambitions as a coaching team for, for Eastleigh? Well, to be honest with you, it's just really to raise the awareness of the women's game. We want people to come and watch us on a, on a Sunday afternoon and be entertained by the football we play uh, and be able to showcase that the women's game is of a good level and is of, of a good standard with a hungry group of girls that, that love the sport just like just like the men do. So it's just to showcase what they can do on a match day and, and get people to buy into it. That's the eventual goal. Um, we've been really fortunate as a club uh, already now. We've got a new full-time scholarship system that will be in place for next year for the women's game. So anyone that's 16 to 18 years old girls, they can go into a scholarship system where they'll get their education full-time They'll play midweek games uh, and just gives you like a nice sort of pathway into, into first team football as well. So the opportunities are endless and we just want it to be a, uh, an open invitation for, for young girls in the local area to, you know, to play the sport they love and be able to express themselves on the pitch. All right, Brad. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Really appreciate your time and um, wish you well for the rest of the season. Thank you very much for your time. It's a pleasure. And now it's time for... Football fans from around the world. And I'm joined by Victor Espinola, who's a Watford fan in Sao Paulo in Brazil. And Victor, I'd like to start by asking you why you support Watford. Well, Mark, thanks for the invitation. It's an honour to be here representing the Watford fans around the globe. Well, uh, I was always a big fan of English football. And when Watford got promoted in 2015, something got my attention about the club. To be honest, to this day, I, I haven't really found out why, but I guess it's the way the Watford treats its fans around the globe and especially back in Hertfordshire because it's a, it's a family club. 
Um, and in the time that you've supported Watford, what's your, your best memory? I'll have to say that it's the well, FA Cup uh, semi-final of 2019 against Wolverhampton. Uh, it was something out of this world for me, at least. And just remembering it, uh, it, give me, it gives me good, uh, goosebumps. And um, who's your, your favourite player in, in the time that you've supported them? Well, um, coincidentally, it's a close battle between Delo Phil and Trey Dini that scored the, the three goals for Watford that day. Um, Jerry brought a, brought a talent to Watford that I, I don't believe we had ever seen. And it's still he's still very missing. Uh, and Troy Dini is a symbol to the Hornets, even though he left the club recently. And he's a part of the history of Watford FC. And you've, uh, you've recently had... Uh, a, a very interesting appointment as the new manager in Claudio Ranieri. Obviously, we all know what he did at Leicester. Uh, what do you What do you think about him being your new manager? Well, I was sad for Shisco, but I think Ranieri will bring uh, an experience for Watford that we haven't seen yet. And he's very uh, well known for the Premier League title, as you mentioned. So I think uh, we have great expectations for the for the season. And while I've uh, while I've got you, I just want to ask you about um, football fans in in Brazil. We we know that Brazil is a, a crazy football nation, um, but people might be surprised to hear that you have a, a a fan in Brazil who supports Watford. Are there lots of fans of all the different Premier League clubs in in Brazil? Yeah, it's actually crazy because we we meet sometimes of course the pandemic kind of put a stop to it but we actually meet to watch some games and we have actually a, a pretty good fan base of what for here in brazil but of course the bigger teams of the big six liverpool city tottenham they have a pretty big a fan base and kind of an embassy here in brazil and finally where do you think watford will finish this season well, after the Honieri signing, I have medium to high expectations, I would say. I think around ninth, tenth place, even in eighth place will be will be very good for, for Watford, given that we just came back from the championship. Well, it'd be great to get you back on later in the season and, and see if, uh, if you're on track for that. But thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. And I'm joined now by Dylan. And Dylan is a Wolves fan in Chicago in the USA. And Dylan, I'll start as I usually do by asking you why you started supporting Wolves. The reason I started supporting Wolves, because um, on August 11th, 2018, I tuned into a Wolves game. It was a draw 2-2 to Everton. I just loved the way they played that game. And then I went to check out Wolves like on social media, and they seemed like a really good team for the fans. And that's why I started supporting Wolves. And what's your, your best memory so so far as a as a Wolves fan in the time you've supported them? Really good question. December 27th, 2019, Wolves beat City with an amazing comeback, 3-2. to two. They were down 2-0, and then they just came back... It was such an entertaining game to watch. And the Matt Doherty winner in the 89th minute just got me so excited. Yeah, and, and uh, obviously you've, you've supported Wolves for a relatively short time. Um, but who's your favourite Wolves player 
so far in, in the time you've supported them? My favorite Wolves player, it's got to be Pedro Neto. I just love the way he dribbles and his finishing ability and his chance creation. I just loved the way he played last season when Raul Jimenez was injured. He was just scoring all the goals. Where do you think Wolves will, will finish this season? Really good question. We're currently on the roll with the new signing of Huang He Chan. He's been on a great form this season, and I hope for him to do well. And I think we might finish around 10th or 9th place. And I'm joined by Amy Wilson, who's a Leeds United fan in Thailand. Um, and Amy, I'm going to start by asking you, why did you start supporting Leeds? It was my local club growing up, much to my dad's absolute dismay, being a Chef Wednesday fan <laughs> but and playing for Chef Wednesday. But all the kids in school supported Leeds and it was just from then on. And um, what's your best memory in the time that you've supported Leeds? Well, in the time I've supported Leeds, we've had a bit of a, a dodgy run, but it has to be during lockdown last year where the the promotion and sitting in the garden celebrating because we had such a great summer with the heat, even though we were stuck in lockdown, beers in the garden, barbecue going, celebrating the uh, the promotion, definitely. And like you said, you, you've uh, supported Leeds basically you know, since they've been out of the, the Premier League. So the Premier League is yeah. fairly new as a, as a Leeds fan for you. But who, who's been your your favourite Leeds player in, in all that time that you've supported them? Because they've had some great players in that time. Do you know who I really loved? I loved uh, Snodgrass. I thought he was absolutely brilliant. He was dirty as heck, was happy to get in a good tackle, but always played brilliantly and... He was one, at one point probably one of the only international players we had for Leeds, but used to always 100% all the way through, which was always good. But my favourite one now has to be Jack Harrison. Again, I think he's absolutely brilliant. And even my daughter will see football on the telly and she'll go, oh, Jack, Jack Harrison! Knows no other Leeds player, but knows Jack Harrison. <laughs> and obviously, great, uh, great start back in the Premier League last season, but where do you think Leeds will finish this season? Oh, well, <laughs> we've had a bit of a dodgy start, but I think we will be roundabout middle. That would be my guess, roundabout middle. Comfortable, maybe. Still again, Arsenal are being shoddy again, so maybe we could beat them this season. We were behind them this last one, so see if we can beat them this season because they ain't big six no more, are they? <laughs> And what about what about an actual prediction for a, a final position, would you say? Oh, I'm going 11. 11th. All right, Amy. Well, thanks for your time. That's great. And, um, <laughs> yeah, we've got your your dad, who's uh, Dean Barrick, as you say, used to play for Sheffield Wednesday. He's coming on as a guest soon, so looking forward to that. Absolutely. Uh, he's got a good story or two, definitely. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for your time, Amy. Great to speak to you. Thank you. Take care. Early Doors Football Podcast for football fans worldwide. If you want to get in touch with Mark and the rest of the team, you can reach them on early doors at forthenow.com.
www.cyberspace.co.uk.